Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Jenny Mills. Jenny received a position at the U.S. Department of State in 2014 as a Presidential Management Fellow after receiving a graduate degree from the Joan B. Kroc School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. The fellowship program allowed her to diversify her understanding of U.S. foreign policy from the perspective of Washington, overseas posts, and the intelligence community. Currently, she supports policymakers every day with her analysis of evolving and complex political and security dynamics in order to contextualize policy decisions and achieve U.S. objectives abroad. Jenny also spent over six months in a war-torn country of the Central African Republic, supporting the U.S. Embassy and filled in as a political officer at Embassy Addis Ababa. Jenny, we are so excited to have you here with us today. How are you? I am doing well. Thanks for having me uh, on this great podcast. I'm a big, big fan and super honored, honestly, to to be with this uh, group of, of women. So thanks for having me on. Well, we're thrilled to have you. So why don't we just get started by you telling us uh, and our listeners about your background, which is really fascinating. How did you find your way to the State Department and into the intelligence community? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I think, frankly, it it goes all the way back somewhat to to childhood. Um, I grew up on a small island in Africa called the Comoro Islands. And I think uh, that exposure at such a young age to living abroad and uh, living in a developing country that, you know, at, at the time was going through quite a bit of, of internal uh, conflict um, and, and in the process of, of wrestling with some difficult uh, challenges. Um, I think always has kind of attracted me, one, to Africa, but then also to conflict and human rights and good governance um, and all of that, that, you know, good stuff, interesting stuff. Um, but, uh, despite having those roots, you know, uh, along the way, I, you know, started as an art major in, in my bachelor's degree, um, at Arizona State University and, and thought that I was going, I was going to grow up to be as an artist or a fashion designer or something like that. Um, and I took an, uh, uh, international relations course as, as one of my like basic requirements and, I loved it. It really clicked with my brain and um, I thought the subject matter was interesting and, and I was good at it. Um, it. It really like resonated with uh, the way in which I looked at the world and how I wanted to understand the world. Um, so I took this course and then decided to change my major over to political science. And um, after graduating, it just so happened to be during the beginnings of the Great Recession. So I decided 
because of that, as well as just wanting some more training to, to go over to the University of San Diego's Joan B. Croc School of Peace Studies and pursue a graduate degree. Um, graduated, unfortunately, still in the Great Recession. Um, and so did what most millennials did, squatted at my parents' house and tried to find anyone that would, would pay me any money for consulting gigs or uh, did pro bono work so I could just network with people and worked at a lens crafters. And, you know, you just did whatever you had to do to make ends, ends meet and was eventually at this conference in Washington, D.C. that I was uh, participating in. And a, a family friend mentioned this presidential management fellowship program. And uh, I guess for our, our audience members, this is something that's run out of the White House, the executive office. Um, it's a leadership development uh, program that brings people into the government that probably wouldn't necessarily be involved in the U.S. government. Um, so I applied like two weeks later and got in uh, and um, then had like the grueling process of still trying to find a job in the US government and ended up getting a position at Department of State's Bureau for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor like 24 hours before my eligibility expired. And so like wow. very close call of not ever getting into the US government or at least not in um, that stage of my life, but but did. So um, went into to the Democracy, Human Rights and Labor. And then during the fellowship, which is about two years, did several assignments, um, one out to an embassy. Um, and then my second assignment was into the intelligence research bureau. And I loved it and decided to, to stick with it. Wow. What a, I mean, the beginning of your career, just what a story in, a, in and of itself. And it's the beginning. So what was it like for you um, moving from hum, the human rights field into government? Was this like a, the natural destination or was it tough to make that transition? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. And so, yeah, I mean, my my background, um, what I studied at the, the Joan B. Croc School of Peace Studies was human rights. And most of the work that I had done in the consulting sphere before I went into government was human rights. So, um, I mean, one, I would say that it's it's interesting coming from human rights. If you're a, an NGO in that field, um, your job is mainly to do like the finger wagging at the U.S. government of like, why aren't you doing more? And uh, and often, like frankly, oftentimes being really disappointed at the lack of movement of the U.S. government um, and hoping that they would do do more and do it quicker. Um, and so it was interesting, like moving from this person on the outside that actually had kind of some negative baggage um, and negative thinking about the US government, um, moving in and, and trying to, uh, one, I think actually becoming very humbled and um, educated I don't think that uh, we fully understand the complexities of what policy, policy makers are wrestling with um, until you get in a room with them and you watch uh, these very sincere people who all are, are very much trying to protect US interests, but also trying to, to ensure our values are also being um, considered. And, 
there is so many trade-offs and there's so many limitations, some of them being, you know, because of our institutions, because we're a democracy that has checks and balances and there's protections that are good, but they also can, can slow um, the process. And the other part of it is the limitations of dealing with sovereign countries, right? Like our job as, as the US government and foreign policy is to influence government's behaviors overseas. And um, that's not an easy task when you have a sovereign entity uh, who doesn't have to pick up your phone calls. They don't have to meet with you. And you know, if you cut assistance, um, they can live without that, right? So, I mean, this is not always the easiest um, environment. And so I think for me as a human rights person who oftentimes was looking at State Department from the outside and just so wondering why they didn't do more, um, it was quite a humbling experience to get in and realize how much they were trying to do, how much they are trying to do and understanding that there's oftentimes more there's all these options that are, are there's going to be trade-offs and they're, they're not good or bad. They're filled with good and bad. Um, and so you have to somehow like pick these options and honestly swallow the good and bad as you move forward and try to navigate these waters. Before we kind of dive into your time, you know, at State Department, I know you spent some time working with NGOs before joining the government, and you touched on that just a tad. How would you say those two worlds are different, especially out in the field? Yeah, they're really, they're, they're very different. And I actually think like maybe two of the starkest differences in my mind have to do with like who you are engaging with and who you have access with. Um, and then the other one is security. So on the first, um, it's interesting as an NGO person, I was always so envious of U.S. government's um, employees who had access to all these higher up people, right? Like as an NGO activist, I'm meeting with the deputy director or some staff member who, who pushes paper, who really has no like decision power at all. And if I had you know this amazing opportunity to meet with the minister of justice about a human rights issue that would be thrilling and this is something that government officials have regularly it's it's a it's a huge luxury um then the other side of it though is, is as a government person now um i really miss that i i don't get to work as much with the community level with the people, which is what NGOs for the most part are doing. They're working with the average citizen. So um, that's definitely been something I, I miss a lot because that perspective is so important. And one thing that when I go overseas and I work with, with an embassy, um, I always try to get hooked up with the public affairs departments because um, they are our main branch into you know, public engagement. Um, and so I, I try to do you know, teaching English with university students or um, doing a mentorship program, or I was a, a judge on a debate, debate team um, at one point in Ethiopia. And, so I, I think that that's really, really important because our worlds can be really small if, if all they are is with the elite. At the same time, I think we all have to step back as, as government employees and realize like what a luxury um, it is to have that access when a lot of NGOs would 
would love to be able to have that type of, of access. The second one is the security. Um, so the security is really different because when you're out at an embassy, um, you know, you have a regional security officer who has a whole entire team around him or her working to like identify trends and figuring out where places are risky and doing all of this analysis and then basically telling you what you can and cannot do. Um, whereas when you're an NGO person, you are your regional security officer. You are making decisions for yourself of whether or not, you know, the risk or benefits, risk versus the benefits of going into an area that's insecure. And if you're a human rights NGO person, you are going into places that are insecure, right? So, so you're having to make these decisions of whether or not this is worth um, putting yourself in, in some situations that have a lot of uncertainty, but also could have a lot of benefits. And of course, there's you know good things and bad things about both. Being in an embassy, you've got a lot of um, constraints on and res restrictions on where you can go, which can be kind of frustrating. Um, but as an NGO person, you're also having to make some pretty big decisions, life risk decisions, um, without having that like infrastructure in back of you protecting right. you. Wow, that, that that is great insight into the different, you know, the difference of the two worlds. Thank you for sharing that. So you took a job on the policy side at the State Department before joining INR. How would you say the policy world and the IC are different and why have you decided to stay on the intelligence side, um, supporting decision makers rather than making the decisions? Yeah, they're very different. And I have to say, like, I, I don't know if I made the best policymaker in, in the world um, and or, or even in my little office for that matter. You know, policymaking is, it's hard. Um, I know for me, something that I really struggled with is that it's it's so abstract. I mean, you're working tirelessly to to try to solve a problem, to influence behavior, as, as I noted before. Um, but in, and you'll come up with some plan, right? I've got a few tools here. Maybe we can do some sanctions. Maybe we can line up, you know, an, uh, a call with the Secretary of State. Maybe we can put this pressure, or use this lever, or whatever else. Um, and even when you get like everyone to agree, and you got a strategy, and you start implementing it, you just really don't know exactly how much impact those tools are having. And even at the end of the day, if you reach your goal. It's hard to say whether or not was it actually, you know, the hard work you put into it and the strategy you put together, or was it potentially, you know, another country's pressure, or maybe there were people on the ground that influenced it, or, you know, there could have been a myriad of things that impacted the situation that eventually led to that outcome. So for me, it just seemed like such an abstract um, place and, and honestly, just a hard place to measure success, um, which I find to be very difficult and kind of taxing on me. So I definitely have a major, um, I guess, humbled and um, grateful uh, spirit to, to all my policymaker colleagues that are wrestling with tough issues and don't necessarily get the gratification of being like success at the end of the day. Because um, it's hard to, 
it's hard to see. So, so when I moved over to INR and did my rotation, um, I was told, you know, basically we tr speak truth to power. Like we sit back and we read and we understand and we think and we pull together and all these, you know, kind of putting together puzzle pieces. And then we talk to a policymaker and we basically tell them this is what we know. And, and if they say something and we don't think it's right, then we tell them you're not right. <laughs> I'm sorry, but uh, this is, this is actually what the reality is. Um, and, but at the end of the day, we hand that information off and we say, okay, go forth. And now you are responsible now for figuring out a way to solve it or to change it or to move it in a certain direction. Um, so I think that that's, that's really uh, something that like I really enjoy is that support role um, and, and being able to be there for my policymakers. And I was actually the other day reading through a, a book that I've, I've really come to enjoy. It's about CAR, it's about Central African Republic, um, but it talks, uh, it quotes, a, a former UN Undersecretary General for Peacekeeping Operations. And this, I would say, like, is in a nutshell how I enjoy or the framing in which I think of supporting policymakers. And the quote is, the most useless way to pretend to help is to offer detailed specific solutions or recipes. What I needed was the fraternal companionships of other actors before me who had to deal with confusion, grapple with the unknown, and yet had made decisions. And I think that for me, that is one of the most important things is that as analysts, oftentimes we think of ourselves as giving these like robust, deep uh, analytical synopses but what a policymaker actually needs in some ways is that companionship, is that like fraternal kind of um, peer person there with them that are wrestling with difficult things and understanding that we are making decisions with very little information. Um, and we should be humbled by that, but we need to not be paralyzed by it. So if I can accompany them in that journey of, of the unknown, but also the need to make decisions, I feel like that's where the analyst and policymaker relationship can be uh, really unique and also um, very, very, you know, important. Wow. Thank you. That was great. So you spent some time working in a war zone and you were in the Central African Republic during an attempt in coup. Um, can you tell us what that experience was like for you? Yeah, it was crazy. So um, it was, <laughs> I think it was about a year into my like fellowship. So, and I mean, quite honestly, before my fellowship, I had really not done a whole lot of you know, high level work, right? I had been a consultant for the most part and I was just barely getting my like feet, um, I guess, on, on the ground and starting to build my confidence as a professional person at all. And I got sent to, or I, I didn't get sent to CAR, I volunteered to go to, to Central African Republic and um, it had only been reopened uh, the embassy for I think a year because it had closed down a couple of years beforehand because of, of the violence getting so 
bad. So it had been opened up just for a short time period. And I think me and there was one other woman um, who arrived within days of me, we were the first women to be on the compound since it had reopened. Can you actually take a step back and, and explain to our listeners the process you went through to be chosen to go? Because I think that in and of itself is a pretty amazing story. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Megan. No, that's a good call. Um, yeah. So as, as a presidential management fellowship program, we do these like assignments and um, one of the one I selected is I wanted to go out to Central African Republic um, considered a, a danger post and a high threat post. And so um, the first response I got from the program at state was uh, very discouraging. They were saying that unless you had combat experience, um, you you would not be allowed to go out to a, a place like this. And uh, I was kind of ready to, to give up pretty quickly, just telling some of my like other staff members in my office. And actually the woman who had mentioned a uh, car as a good possibility before, she was like, well, you should call them back up and, and just mention that that would heavily discriminate against women. And it was just <laughs> this like, ding, 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 ding. Like, oh yeah, that's, that's just drop that in there and then their like inbox and see what they respond. So I did, I typed up an email and I was just like, look, like you can, you can have this policy if you want, but you're, you're discriminating against women. And then I said, I also grew up in Comoro Islands and I went through multiple coups there. So like, please, please look at me as a whole and not, not just like dismiss me just because I, ha I don't have this specific type of experience. I think within minutes, I got a response back that was like approved. And then of course, like a month later, I'm in this floor zone and I'm like, holy smokes. Okay. Wow. <laughs> well, so, um, so yeah, so it was, it was interesting. And actually I found out like later that other presidential management fellows that were trying to go out to certain places and because of security reasons actually continued to drop my name saying like well Jenny Mills went out to car and then doors open so it was great um, that that actually kind of paved the way for others to to kind of push boundaries. 100%. Um, yeah so so yeah it was uh, I was out there the first time for about I think four months. Um, and so went out there without any like foreign service officer training or anything like that. But I mean, for a good chunk of that time, it was really, you know, when it came to like the political branch of the embassy, it was me and the charge. It was just a small, small team. Um, and then we had, of course, others around too doing uh, other jobs. But that meant that, you know, if the charge couldn't go to a meeting, then I was going to it. So I was meeting with these very high level officials um, and, uh, and building relationships and really being exposed to something that was probably way beyond um, my, my level at the time. And then, um, and then we, we had a crisis. Uh, we had armed groups starting to march in the Capitol with the intention of, of taking over. Uh, the government. And it was, if you've never been in a war zone, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting how little information you really have. Um, and your world becomes quite small in many ways, because 
you know, one, you can't be tracking everything, but also communications go down. Um, you know, it, it's hard to get, it's hard to find out information of what's going on outside of your small little bubble, if that makes sense. So we kind of knew what was going on in the capital, but it was really hard to know our, our armed groups traveling from the East, how many of them are, are they like getting close to the capital? How many have infiltrated the capital, et cetera, et cetera. So this was just uh, just learning kind of like how to, to track those things and who to contact and kind of piecing that stuff together. I think actually it was probably the beginning stages of really knowing that I was going to be very good in INR and that maybe was where I needed to, to finally find a home when it came to Department of State. Um, I remember when I was out there, I was discovering that armed groups seemed to continue to bypass um, like checkpoints that the UN had had set up to try to, to prevent them from moving further closer to Bangui, the capital. And uh, I realized that it looked like what they were doing was taking these nomadic pathways, these like cattle herding pathways um, to avoid main roads and likely to avoid, um, you know, uh, the UN peacekeeping operation from stopping them. And so I got on the phone with the UN person and was like, you may already know this, but um, I think this is what they're doing. And so then all of a sudden, you know, we're having UN people come to our compound and we're all kind of talking about like, what do we know? Let's all work together because this is a chaotic situation and maybe you have information that we don't have and let's let's just start piecing this together. So so I think I, I really, really enjoyed that um, part of it, the kind of piecing things together. But of course there's like another side of it that's, you know, you've, you've got locally employed staff um, which embassies have a, a bunch of, of locally employed staff um, who, this is their home, right? Where the visitors, this is where they live. And you, you know, in these situations, you've got some of them who are fleeing from violence mm -hmm. um, or they're trying to protect their homes from being looted. And so that was the hard part, I think, is, you know, as, as someone who felt like I was, somewhat protected um, behind the fortress of the embassy, getting calls from LES who were trying to uh, figure out whether or not they should flee their homes and trying to like work and, and help them through that process and getting out maps and trying to track where armed groups were like heading into different neighborhoods and, uh, and trying to give them the best wisdom of when to like shelter in place and when to get out of there um, was, was a lot. Um, but it was definitely, I would say, if you want to hit, have impactful work, um, if you want to see measurable success, uh, I have to say that's one of the best environments to do it because if you get through a day and you haven't lost someone, that feels like so, so much success. So did you ever during this period or, uh, or, in any of any other crisis situations or roles that you um, you were in, did you ever doubt yourself or lack confidence? And how did you keep from kind of second guessing yourself in those types of situations? Yeah, I. It's interesting because it's hard for me to even conceptualize confidence in a crisis because I just don't feel like you have the luxury of of doing so, and. 
I think there is something too. I mean, when you're in a crisis, you're probably in um, fight or flight mode, right? So you have a lot of, of chemicals running through your body and you, you do, I think, um, have the ability to, to narrow and, and think very clearly some people, and then some people get paralyzed. But in these situations, I feel like for me, my brain goes into hyperdrive and all of a sudden things do become clear and kind of the, the fog that happens when you almost have too much time um, and you have the time to second guess yourself, it's not there. So the decision usually is right in front of you and you've got, you know, maybe a few minutes, maybe an hour or so to make the decision before that's going to pass away. And there's usually a high, a high risk, right? There's, there could be lives at stake. And so in a crisis, I think you, you take that decision, you, you make it with the best of your ability, and then you realize you're probably not going to have a lot of breathing space before the next decision comes. Um, I think that like after a crisis, and I think a lot of people feel this when you come down off of it, there can be a lot of second guessing and a lot of looking back and maybe um, wondering if you made the right decision. I think this is something that uh, a lot of people deal with when it comes to even their um, self-confidence or, or professional confidence um, throughout their careers. I guess for me, it's, you know, this is a learning experience. Um, and I think that, you know, all, all decisions come with good and bad. And I think we just have to hope that we make the best possible decisions we can uh, with the information we have. And if it wasn't maybe the best decision in retrospect, which happens because we get more information later, uh, that we learn from it. What could we have done potentially better? But we've got to, I think, give ourselves a little bit of grace um, knowing that when you're in the thick of it, you are doing the very best you can. And especially if your uh, you know, first priority is, is protecting American interests and values and, and people, um, that, those guiding principles um, are going to lead you to good decision-making. Maybe not best decision-making, but definitely good. And that's, that's something solid to stand on. That's a great, uh, great answer. Thank you for that. So I imagine that there have been times when working in a crisis has affected your mental health, which can carry a stigma in our community. How were you able to stay mindful of your well-being during this difficult work? And how did you approach self-care? Yeah, so there is a lot of stigma out there. It's really unfortunate. And I remember like when I started at State Departments, there's just this myth that you hear that, you know, I was told the easiest way to lose your security clearance is by doing counseling, is by getting help. Um, which was really troubling uh, to me. And, and also since I have found out that is definitely a myth. And I think that that's something just to, to put out there as a really strong statement is seeking help is not a bad thing to do. And you are not gonna be punished on a security clearance because you're doing the right things um, in seeking help, help, uh, help and health. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, this has been something even, you know, I've, I've had various stages when it comes to my own mental health and, and how much I'm, I'm working on it. But uh, like a, a big epiphany or a turning point in my life was actually when I was working at an NGO in Africa. Um, I was uh, working with documenting um, torture abuses um, in prison systems during the interrogation process. And so I was on my second interview for the day, like in this prison um, with this man, and he was you know, showing me uh, his like scars and, and talking about how he had been tortured. And I looked down and I saw this spider crawling up my leg. And I'm not like terrified of spiders or anything, but I would say my normal and most human normal reaction is to like flick off a spider. Right. And, uh, and I just looked at it and I just felt like it didn't mean anything that, you know, here I am listening to this man who has had another human being do something that's not human, um, that's, that's really awful and horrible, and this man has gone through so much, and there's a tiny spider on my leg, um, and it just didn't seem to merit any sort of, like, reaction. It didn't, it wasn't danger, it wasn't being tortured, it wasn't anything. And so you just become kind of numb. And I think that life becomes a little surreal, especially when you're working in these issues. Um, so so that was like very eye-opening. So that that afternoon I like went back to my the place I was staying and and realized, wow, this is something that I really need to to prioritize. Um, because I don't want to become someone that's that's completely numb um, and disconnected from reality. So I, from that point on, like, you know, it, whether or not it's, it's journaling or I'm, I'm someone that I really enjoy um, drawing. Um, I love hiking and going outdoors. I do mindfulness. I, uh, you know, make sure to prioritize connections and relationships with, with friends. Um, there's, you know, a multitude of things in which we can kind of nurture ourselves and, and help our, ourselves uh, process through difficulties and that's not just professional right we we also have the personal side of things too and and life sometimes throws you things that are quite difficult to to process so and I've also done counseling and I've I've really enjoyed that process because sometimes you need more tools than what you have right right now um, so it's been a huge part of, of my life and I've been very thankful that I guess I, I decided to get beyond that stigma and, and took a chance and I would say it's it's part of the reason why I've been sustained and able to do to keep going into conflict right and 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 done it in a way that I'm not getting burnt out um, because I'm I'm taking the time to process I'm taking the time to make sure that uh, I'm I'm dealing with this stuff in a healthy way. Thank you for sharing uh, specifically on this topic because you know this is really important for our audience to hear um, because like you said, mental health in the IC is so stigmatized. So you know, thank you for sharing. We can switch gears just a, a little bit and tell us about what you're doing now at INR and what is your role and are there any initiatives that you're involved with that you'd like to share with us? Yeah. 
Thanks. Uh, so I am currently an analyst working on uh, the Horn of Africa, predominantly Ethiopia, Eritrea, and then I've continued to cover Central African Republic. So it's kind of an odd portfolio, but since I was out in, in CAR for um, as long as I was, I've kind of continued to, to have that as my anchor in my um, portfolio. But um, yeah, so it's it's been interesting during COVID. Um, of course, <laughs> a lot of us said uh, the IC is kind of an odd place to be when you have to telework since a lot of our job has to do with, with accessing classified information in, in places you can't be teleworking. Um, so I think that, you know, re, um, kind of rejiggering the way in which I view open source um, analysis and, and information has been something that's been really eye-opening and um, is hopefully something that I am I'm going to be able to, to keep diving more into. And um, I, I would love to be a part of, of helping position the intelligence community, the US government intelligence community um, to better understand how to use these tools, uh, not only for our own benefit, but also understanding that you know, our policymakers for the most part operate in open source relationships. And so being able to get them really timely information that they can share out uh, is, is really important. Um, we think sometimes I think there's, there's a myth out there that classified information equals like power or, you know, it's, it's, um, it's worth is, is very high. But uh, open source provides so much, and especially now when you just have people all over the world that are getting information through social media platforms. Um, it's a wealth of information. I think now it's about filtering it and understanding the quality of it. And I think we're all still wrestling with that, whether or not it's my job or even in my personal life, trying to assess when I get a message or something pops up on my screen, how do I evaluate the, the worth of this and how much should it influence my behavior? So those are things that I'm kind of wrestling with right right now and trying to, to better enhance our ability to, to use those things. Um, but yeah, like I'm hoping uh, that's gonna be a little bit more a part of what my job is. And I've been working on some other projects when it comes to just building up our capacity in INR. I'm definitely someone that gets restless just being an analyst. Uh, behind a computer is is fun for only a some time period, and then I'm like, okay, let's let's look at how we can be creative and innovative. So, I'm oftentimes probably um, coming up with other schemes and stuff like that that I can pursue to to hopefully like better better our workforce and. Um, put us in a stronger position and, and making sure as our policy clients' needs evolve, um, are we evolving with? And uh, hopefully uh, that'll be kind of the, the stuff I'm working on in the next few years. Awesome. So, you know, one of the things I love about your career is how open you've been to new opportunities that might seem a little off the straight and narrow path. What advice would you give our listeners about career planning? Yeah, it's it's a good question. And actually, I feel like um, I've, I've listened to a lot of the other uh, women who have been on this podcast and everyone is offering such great advice. And I, I think I probably fall very similar to, to many of the other um, uh, participants in saying that like, just 
don't get stuck um, in a track. I, I think uh, another participant was just saying that even now, I think it's as early as, you know, elementary school almost, you're kind of sad, like what career path are you going to take? Right. Uh, and you take these aptitude tests and all of a sudden you're like, okay, I'm an engineer, check box. And so I think that we can feel really boxed in. And um, sometimes that has to do with like kind of external factors. And then I think at, at times it also has to do with our own internal thinking um, that, that boxes us in. Um, and I would just say, I mean, most of the decisions that I have made in life have always had some kind of, it's a stretch, right? Like, I guess I grew up thinking that I would be a, a human rights advocate and an NGO and that I'd probably want to rise up the ranks and eventually become a, you know, president of a human rights organization. Um, I never thought I'd be working for the U.S. government, um, but uh, I took a big off-road um, in many ways. And the off-road has been educating and has actually turned into a, a really fulfilling career um, opportunity. And that's kind of what, I guess I don't think, when I think of career planning, I don't necessarily see it as, you know, check this box and then move here and move up and whatever else. I see things as opportunities to learn and uh, to challenge myself, to gain new skills, to uh, see other perspectives. And um, I think that that's, if you can look at things as opportunities to gain something from and give something to, um, I think that that will, will be a very good guiding force, uh, or at least it'll get you off that kind of just being on the same path for forever and ever and ever. And then I think the second thing is, is just knowing what your priorities and values are. So I've turned jobs down in the past that probably would have looked really good on my resume. And uh, actually, I would say like, were the traditional things to do, like if I want to kind of move up in the ranks, this is a box to check. Um, and I've turned some of those down just thinking like, does this really meet my own priorities and values in life? And sometimes they, they don't. And I have to say, sticking with priorities and values, um, it, it will always, you will never feel disappointed in a job, regardless of what the title is, where it is, et cetera, et cetera. If you are doing things that you believe in um, and you are, are, I guess, making sure that it fits within your lifestyle right now. Um, so those are like the big things that I think are my guiding forces. And so far, they have led to a fairly adventurous, fun career that um, I definitely have felt challenged. And um, I felt very blessed by all of the opportunities that have come into my life. Well, that is such great advice. And I hope I hope our listeners were really tuned in because that was really great advice. So as you know, um, we ask each guest to share with us if they had to give their self a code name, what would it be and why? And so I'm excited to hear yours. Yeah, this is a this is a fun activity. And I definitely spent a lot of time trying to come up with a really cool name. Um, and and then was having a conversation with my parents and my dad reminded me of the most embarrassing moment. I've had a department of state. And, uh, and so my code name I'm going to go with is blue hand. 
And uh, the abridged version of the story is that within, I don't know, a few weeks of, of being at State Department, I was uh, going to participate at my first National Security Council meeting. And uh, this is, you know, I mean, now it's like, I probably would try to get out of these meetings, but back then it was like this infamous auspicious. I was so excited to go to my first National Security Council meeting and represent my bureau. And so I got up extra early and like made sure I looked good. Um, I like did my hair and everything. <laughs> super, super stoked. Um, got to work like the the minutes couldn't go by slower i was like when is this happening i'm so excited about this meeting and then um ended up running late of course and uh barely got in before the meeting um but everyone was super cordial everyone like shot up wanted to shake my hand i was like hey hey hey! i'm jenny mills from democracy human rights and labor all shook hands everyone sits down and one of the, the gentlemen across the table like raises his right hand and shows it to everyone and goes, huh, like I got blue ink on my hand. And then everyone's hand comes up and they're all like, oh, I have blue ink on my hand. And I take my hand and I look at it. There is not only like blue ink like on spots. No, it is covered in blue ink. So I am realizing at this point, I just inked this whole entire <laughs> of like these high up officials. So my hand darts underneath the table and I'm like, gosh, I gotta take notes. Uh, so I'm gonna take notes with my left hand, which I'm not a left hand person. So I take notes throughout the whole session with my left hand and uh, totally squirmish, you know, feeling guilty. Uh, we get to the end of the meeting. I rush out and grab my coat and just like tuck my my uh, hands into my pocket. And one of the gentlemen, I guess, went to the restroom and uh, tried to wash his hands. So he came back out and he was like, oh, this must be permanent ink because I can't get it off. And so everyone starts like chatting about the blue ink, the blue ink. And so my like guilt and shame is like in the belly and it's slowly rising to my throat. And finally, I, I you know, announce my dark blue secret. <laughs> like I held my right hand up and I was like, I am so sorry. I think I inked all of you. I don't know what happens. Super apologies. I'm not even sure where this blue ink pen came from. And I literally didn't. Like I never found the source of how I got inked and how I inked all of those people. But anyways, everyone started laughing and it was it was wonderful. Like no, no harm done. Um, although I was kind of shell-shocked um, at the time, but I thought it was just a very good story about, you know, this podcast is great because it highlights women who are working in, in, a, in a world um, that oftentimes is hidden, right? And so I think that a lot of times as, as average Americans, we don't really know much about this world. And these people who, who work in it seem elitist or they seem just so far removed. And to be quite honest, we're a bunch of, you know, normal Americans who you grew up with, who are goofy and, and sometimes, uh, you know, ink people or whatever else. Um, so I, I think that 
you know, we all just need to realize that we're, we're all Americans um, in the same boat trying to, trying to understand and, and, and help each other. So, yeah. I cannot tell you how much I love that story for so many reasons. And I think it's going to resonate with so many people. I absolutely love it. So thank you so much. Jenny, this has been so fun. I, I just had such a, it's been such a pleasure getting to know you um, on, on this episode. Thank you for your service. Thank you for paving the way for other women um, at INR. And um, thank you for sharing your story with us. I hope you had fun. I did. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And lastly, we'd like to thank Resolute Unicorn and Wise Wisteria for making this amazing series possible. We'd also like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce and we'll talk next time.